Hello and welcome to the second episode of Chachi Chats. I'm Danny and I run the Chachi Power Project. I explore the world of body image, body confidence and the body positivity movement. And this podcast was created to make it easier for us to learn together. In this episode, I speak to nutritionist Sarah Dempster about the damage of weight stigma and how the language we use around the children in our lives to do with food and bodies may not be all that great. But don't worry, we have ways to help. Now, this episode was recorded a few months ago and things were very different then. But as you may have noticed, lockdown has brought a whole new load of fat phobia into plain sight and a type of fat phobia that we never even knew existed. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick of seeing all those weight gaining memes crowding my social media. I hope you'll find this conversation about how to help your children grow up with a positive attitude to food and their bodies really helpful. Here's my chat with Sarah. So I'm one of those people who has learned about body positivity and fat phobia and diet culture via other people's posts on social media and reading books and ranting online, blogging and having conversations and learning as I go, which I presume quite a lot of people involved in the body positive movement are like. We are educated and we are passionate and we have informed opinions which are valid, but Sarah Dempster is a different breed. She's a registered nutritionist with a master's in psychology. She has worked in the NHS, she's done research, she's worked with people who are struggling with body image and their relationships to food, and she has collaborated with others to take essential direct action to fight against weight stigma on a national level. She has a specific interest in defending our kids against negative thinking and helping parents raise their children to have a healthy attitude towards food and their bodies. A lot of people get in touch with me because this is a real concern for them. And it's a focus of mine too. How can we bring up kids to have a healthy body image and not suffer in the same ways that we may have? I also consider Sarah a very supportive friend who I'm so pleased I met a couple of years ago and I'm really proud to say she lives very close. Just to know there's someone doing such great work on my doorstep is awesome. I've pointed many a worried parent in her direction over the last couple of years. So hello, Sarah, and thanks so much for coming in to chat to me today. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) So I think what we need to start off with is having a better understanding of who you are and how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Okay, it's kind of a convoluted story, but I'll give you kind of the shortest version. Um, I um, went into studying nutrition quite a while ago now. Um, I'd always had an interest in food and sort of when I was probably in my early 20s, I was just your typical kind of interested in all of the fitness magazines, learning about health. Um, and I kind of wanted, I suppose going into nutrition was about um, learning as much as I could about the optimal way of eating and this vague kind of idea that I would be able to support other people with that. Um, so I did my degree and after that kind of went down the standard route of a nutritionist of kind of working in weight, weight management, a bit of work around kind of sport and fitness nutrition. Latterly, I worked in the NHS more so on early years nutrition and a little bit of work around food poverty. And sort of during that time, I became aware of weight stigma as a factor that actually has quite a strong influence on health and doesn't get an awful lot of attention. Mm-hmm. I saw it as something that really was adding to health inequalities. So I wanted to kind of do more around that. But at the same time, I became a mum and... Um, kind of that really brought to light how much of our own relationship to food in our bodies rubs off onto our kids. So I wanted to learn a lot more about that. 
with a view to kind of going back into it. And maybe I still haven't actually really decided whether I want to do more one to one work or do more policy level work. I'm kind of doing a mishmash of things at the moment, but finished my master's in psychology. I'm now actually I've taken a sidestep and I'm working in perinatal mental health. And yeah, still doing food and nutrition work in my own time and just trying to influence and make a wee bit of a difference where I can. So you were working in the NHS, but you're not working anymore in the NHS? That's right, yeah, aha, uh-huh. I work in the third sector now. I really loved working in the NHS and I would do it again, but yeah, I, I wanted to kind of move outside of it, do more learning, get a bit of more experience in other areas. And I actually quite like the freedom of being able to sort of do those little bits of influencing you know, in my own way where I can. quite enjoy that. So I might be back in the NHS at some point in the future, but for now I'm quite liking how things are. So you're also a mum? Yes, I have two little ones. Oh, and and that has like kind of shaped the way that you kind of changed what you were looking at mainly? Definitely, Uh uh-huh, yeah. Just seeing, I suppose it starts from pregnancy that people become hyper-focused on your body, you know, and you, you notice your body changing, but it almost is like your body becomes public property, so people are noticing the size of your bum, you know, you get a lot of comments like, oh, you're so neat, or oh, you're huge. Um, yeah. And so that really, you know, from a personal point of view, brought to light, like actually, the way that our bodies change over our lifetimes is something that other people do take a lot of interest in. Um, and then I think after having my children, my little boy was quite big as a baby. You would get that all that, oh, look at the size of him, yeah. all that kind of thing. Chunky. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I started to be aware of, I think it was really when, he, when I had my daughter, my son was about two and a half, and that's when they're checked for their, like their, whether their height and weight classifies them as like a healthy weight or at risk of overweight or obesity. And he was on this BMI central that was kind of almost off the charts. And I was like, wow, you know, we're actually categorizing children at that age Mm. when we don't really, I didn't get any, you know, anything from the health professionals that I should be doing anything differently. But I remember putting the information in on the NHS website and, you know, really getting quite, the information was making assumptions that I needed to change his lifestyle you know mm. that I needed to change his eating patterns or that I needed to encourage him to be more active and that at was at two, and, two and, a half. and a half two and a half yeah so that kind of set off a fire in me I think I was aware of stuff on the periphery before then and I you know I had worked in children's weight management with children as young as five or six um before I had children probably about four four or five years before and had really had that was always in my mind like actually we need to promote positive body image we need to be inclusive we need to not stigmatise. But actually seeing it, I suppose, in your own children, it just it, it puts a bit more of a fire under you when you're like, actually, this really isn't right. Yeah. You know, and that was just me being... And at that point, I had the knowledge to say, no, actually, I know that he's eating okay and I know that he's active. This is not something that I need to worry about. Yeah. I think we are putting a lot of fear into parents and I think there's a lot of judgment out there. Yeah, and I wanted to change that. Especially when you're when you're a parent, a new parent p- potentially, who just has no knowledge of whether they're doing the right thing. They're constantly questioning themselves all the time and they're probably very easily led to go down a route that they think is best, but it just sounds like it's fear it's quite fear mongering mm-hmm. and that cuts across parenting as a whole I mean we could have like 10 different conversations about this because it's not just about food food is something that we get a lot of 
worry and judgment around when as parents but you know behavior sleep everything there's mm-hmm. a, a, so much of a culture of like you know parent kind of parent responsibility for making sure that their children grow into this sort of perfect human being and that can feel like a huge amount of pressure oh, for people especially if their life circumstances make it really difficult for them to follow any of that sort of guidance and then all, all, so much of the guidance is conflicting so yeah it's really a minefield so um from your site it says you're a nutritionist but you are slightly different from a lot of other nutritionists out there because you approach nutrition from a weight inclusive and food neutral perspective. So tell us what those sort of terms mean. Okay, so weight inclusive first of all is, um, I deliberately went with that because I think my approach before had been, and, and a lot of people have this approach and I don't judge them for it at all, is that it's quite standard in nutrition and in fitness to kind of make assumptions that people want to lose weight. And culturally, you know, going on diets is such a normal thing to do. Um, when you walk into a gym, when you speak to somebody about food, quite often the undercurrent is, or you know, it comes up in conversation quite quickly, is that you would want to lose a few pounds, get rid of the muffin top, um, tone up, whatever it might be. It's all quite body shape, size focused. Um, so I decided uh, quite consciously to stop making assumptions about people based on their weight. And I think weight inclusive approaches take quite a person centred approach. So it's not about saying that your weight is irrelevant or that you don't, you shouldn't want to change your weight. It's just about taking those assumptions away and treating the person as the person, recognising that the world's quite a hostile place to people who are at a higher weight. Um, so trying to provide people with the support that they need that are right for them at that time like focusing on what what matters to people Mm -hmm. rather than going straight in there and thinking we need to change your weight Mm -hmm. you know that if we change your weight your health will get better or your well-being will improve all of these things your problems will be solved yeah uh uh-huh yeah so so weight inclusive approaches are quite broad but i'd say at the at the heart of it it's about stopping making assumptions that people want to lose weight so stopping making assumptions that people's health conditions are caused by their weight um, and treating them as a, a whole person. So refreshing to hear, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the food neutral side of it is about language that we use around food, and that's particularly pertinent when we're talking about food with children. So words that we commonly see used that have quite a moralistic tone to them are things like junk food, or even calling things unhealthy. It's quite polarized language that some food is wrong and other food is good and virtuous Mm -hmm. um even words like calling things like sweets or cakes treats Mm -hmm. um it puts them on a pedestal Mm -hmm. so we're almost like we're, we're giving food like a hierarchy we're saying that some foods are brilliant for you and other foods are terrible for you whereas when we what we actually know is that we eat different foods for all different kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. that the health benefits of our food isn't necessarily the whole kind of benefit of that food to a person. And that actually we know that, so typically when you see pictures of nutritionists, they're probably holding up an apple or something like that. <laughs> you a know, salad. If you, were to, <laughs> if you were to put into one of the image banks nutritionists, you'd probably see somebody smiling in a white coat holding an apple. But if you only eat apples, that wouldn't be very healthy. So it's about recognising that 
no food is inherently good or bad. Um, it's just food. It's just food. And yes, some foods are more nutritious than others. But if we take away that moralistic language about it, so we're not saying just all food is equally healthy, but we're just sort of trying to approach all food with a relaxed, curious approach. Like, oh, there's sometimes for some people, any type of food will have a place in their in their life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh-huh. and so, not not encouraging them to feel bad about wanting that food or needing yeah. that food or feeling like a connection to that food or anything like that. Definitely, and when we talk about it with kids, if you say that a food is bad for you, they might start to make assumptions that you know there's something bad about them for eating it or there's something bad about you for giving it to them. It can it just brings in that those feelings, those emotions like guilt, like shame. And, you know, anyone who's ever been on a diet can probably recognise that as soon as you give a food a label, as soon as you say, I shouldn't be having that, that is bad, or I've been naughty for having that, or, you know, today I've been really good, you end up with that kind of all or nothing approach. Mm -hmm. And that encourages this pass-fail mentality as well. uh Yeah, so you're either on the wagon or you're off the wagon. You're in control or you're out of control. (laughs) Yeah, uh so if you can put food onto just more of an even playing field, take some foods off of its health pedestal, think about like the roles that all different food play in your life and make space for them all, then the chances are you're more likely to have a healthier relationship to food in the longer term and something that can be more sustainable for you. So like we see a lot in... (laughs) When you hear um, things like food neutrality or intuitive eating spoken about, there is a bit of an assumption, I think, among some people who kind of want to hold on to that diet mentality that, oh, well, if you, if you say that all foods are equal, then I will just go and eat chocolate and pizza. All, oh, and that's all I'll eat and I won't care about my health. But actually, when you approach it with curiosity and you're paying attention to your body, um, and that can be really hard to start with for people. It's not something that you can just wake up one day and decide that you're going to do. I'm still Uh three years in. (laughs) I am still very much curious and very much like shocked at how how much learning there is to do about my relationship to food. So I I totally get it. Yeah, it is. It's a a lot of unlearning that Mm -hmm. needs to be done. Um, And when you say people are like holding on to diet culture or scared, it's because that's all they've known. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And it's not anything, there's not anything, um, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. It's just a fact that that is a behavior that you have been surrounded with your whole life. And it's very difficult to break out of that, especially when you think that that's the only way yeah absolutely Uh uh-huh so you're really passionate about raising awareness of the damage that weight stigma does to our collective body image before before we go on like i want to just ask you to talk around the term weight stigma so people get a better a better understanding of what that is sure um i think it is um it's not just something that impacts on on your body image or how you feel about yourself it's actually an issue of social justice so it's something that we need to be looking at as at at a societal level so it's about how people are treated differently because of that physical characteristic so it's it's something that people can see people's size the there's a i'm going to read out a definition like a quite a a sciencey definition that i quite like um it's a researcher called janet tomiyama um and she describes weight stigma as the social rejection and devaluation that accrues to those who don't do not comply with prevailing social norms of body weight and shape so it's that stereotyping and discrimination experienced by people whose weight is higher than that cultural kind of 
um, thin ideal standard or or the, the idea that people have of what is normal it can be internalized so lots of people do feel bad about their body size and that occurs across the weight stig- uh, the whole kind of weight spectrum but weight st- stigma is very much like that cultural phenomenon of thinking about or treating people differently based on their size and it shows up quite prevalently in our society it does, in lots of different ways in so many different ways yes aha uh-huh. from so areas where it's particularly prevalent are healthcare and even in education mm-hmm. and of course the media <laughs> so we're seeing it all the time in the media any time that weight is mentioned at all you get that level of vitriol about if people just ate less and exercised more, then everything would be fine. You know, um, when we hear things around the impact of higher weight on the economy, it's very much that blame culture, you know, so that like this is costing the NHS X amount of money. And, you know, I try not to look at it, but sometimes you can't help it with the headlines that come out. Like last week there was, I, I try not to actually use the word obesity. I'm not very comfortable with it. I know that a lot of people feel that word is quite um stigmatizing but there was a a day last week last week i think called world obesity day and some of the headlines that come out of that so it was delivered in a really well-meaning way it was about raising awareness of weight stigma and how we need to take action on it but then i think it was newspapers like the sun are coming out with actually you know people need to be stigmatized we need to just tell it like it is tell people to sort themselves out that kind of thing it's across the whole of the media. I think Philip Schofield has said some terrible things on this morning when issues around weight stigma have been raised. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, there's been, a, I think, a couple of times. So, you know, people who are generally quite Piers, Mar- Piers Morgan is oh, a big, I mean, a big advocate <laughs> for let's shame, shame everyone and yeah. then that will make them... And like, Dude, like everybody's been shamed their whole blooming life if they're in a fat body. Yeah. Like they know they're in a fat body and they have suffered. And, you know, like if everyone, if shaming worked, like everyone would be slim. Like it's it's so horrendous, that damage that it does. And there's research about the damage that actually shaming has on people who are mm. in a, of a higher weight yeah. and the impact that that can have on their lives. Yes, absolutely. At, at multiple levels as well. So we know like... And again, I always like to to say that body diversity is really normal. So no matter what actions are taken, there will always be people who are, by the BMI um, definition, classified as overweight, obese, whatever you know, the the medical kind of language would describe them as. Um, we're not going to change that. We're not going to change that kind of differences that we have across the population in terms of weight but we do know that people who experience weight stigma are more likely to feel dissatisfied about their bodies are more likely to avoid physical activity because they know that they might be made fun of going to gyms they feel uncomfortable they don't feel like it's a place for them more likely to use disordered eating as a kind of coping mechanism so whether that's eating less eating more or a combination of the two so if we're actually wanting people to have positive relationships with food and with physical activity and with their bodies, then weight stigma, we know for sure, is not the way to go about it. It's doing, it's doing the opposite. It's doing the opposite. It's really counterproductive. Why do people not know this? Like, why, <laughs> why is this I, not... 
I think it is becoming, there are more and more people becoming aware of it. I think at Scottish government level that it is being paid attention to now. It's taken a wee bit of time, but I think it is something that is being discussed more and more as something that needs to be addressed. When the Healthier Future policy came out a few years ago, weight stigma was mentioned in that in relation to being a barrier to accessing weight management services. But I think there is more of a recognition that it actually it's bigger than that. It's not about whether or not somebody is going to be able to take action to change their eating and, and their physical activity. It's actually an issue of discrimination. It's an issue of us not actually making the world a safe place for people who have um, bodies that are at a higher weight. And we have to recognise that there will always be people whose bodies are at a higher weight. Weight loss is, uh, is really difficult weight loss programs that are seen as effective by the NHS people lose a very small amount of weight they don't go from that higher weight category into a lower weight category so we have to make the world a safe and welcoming place for people of all sizes and enable them to live the kinds of lives that they want to live including the ways that they want to eat the ways that they want to move and yeah so you were asking me at the start I think it, where, where do we see weight stigma we see it um, in shops, so people aren't able to get clothes that fit them. We see it in cinemas, airlines, theatres, you know, people can't actually get into the physical spaces that, that fit them. Not, uh, you know, above and beyond the fact that the way that people look at other people, the way that the the little comments that they make little it's comments, just, yeah, <laughs> just those, those wee digs, whether it's some of them are really overt, some of them are some of them are less so, you know, talking about your own diet next to somebody that's much bigger than you. How how helpful is that mm-hmm. <laughs> to their well-being? Education and parents as well. Like there's so much research on all the different settings where people show a bias towards people who have uh, who are in higher weight bodies. So it's just it's across it's across everywhere. Even some around parents treating higher weight children differently from children who are of a lower weight. So. I read that in an yeah, article uh-huh. yesterday about babies being fed in nurseries and how weight stigma can be affecting that. Oh, because wow. Uh-huh. I haven't a, read that. a chunky baby, um, you know, gets a comment of like, why does it need, why do we need to be so focused on get, making sure that they get their milk level for the day? Mm-hmm. And because, uh, you know, he's a wee fatty. Uh-huh. And, you know, like actual quotes from nursery nursery nurses. And it's, I mean, we don't, it's not like a blame game that we're just trying to make people feel bad for like, you know, these comments. It's so common in our society. It's about recognising the damage that they can do and trying to be a bit nicer and better and recognising that it's not just about, actually, it's not just about being nicer and better. It's about the real severe impact that that can have on the people around you like so mm-hmm. you may think it's you being nice a bit a bit kinder but actually it really does make a difference mm-hmm. yeah it's not just about being nice to bigger people it's about making the world a safer place for them yeah. um for everyone um and yeah stopping making assumptions about people based on their size i guess some of the campaigns that we've seen recently they're the, th- the things that have been winding me up over the years are around so last year there was the Cancer Research UK oh, one. the Hangman one. The, uh, the one yes, where you had to guess uh-huh, the letters. Yeah. So they re- revived it last year. So they did it maybe, would have been it around early 2018, the first time. And then last year they made it worse by putting 
the word obesity on cigarette packets. Yeah. And they claimed that they need to give people that factual information that there is an association between higher weight and cancer. But they aligned that with wanting to protect children from advertising of foods that are high in salt, fat and sugar. So for me, that makes a very subtle, for, for all that it's awful to put the, the word on the cigarette packets, to say it's to change policy in that very specific way, to me makes a really subtle assumption that actually only higher weight people need to be protected from advertising of foods. It's, it, it becomes that really polarised, that really divisive messaging that if you eat these foods, you will become a higher weight and put yourself at risk of cancer. It, for all that they said it was about changing policy, for me, when you look at the way that the public responded to it, the way that the media responded to it, it makes it that actually people who are unable to resist these advertising messages are gaining weight and costing the NHS money. Mm-hmm. The people who aren't at a higher weight see it as not relevant to them, that it's things that they don't need to be concerned about. So they're more likely to have negative attitudes, in my opinion. I don't have loads of research on that, but I think more likely to have negative attitudes towards people because of their size. And if you look at how it played out in the media, that was very much the case. It was very much a fuel for the trolls. Yes, Uh uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. People talk about the individualisation of this. So blaming and shaming and making it an individual problem for Mm -hmm. that somebody should be ashamed of the size that they are. Mm -hmm. They're not taking the action. Mm -hmm. Just adds more and more on top of this feeling of that I'm not doing something right or Mm -hmm. that I'm wrong in some way and the rest of society hates me for it because I'm a drain and I'm you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyone looking on to that objectively could be like this isn't really helpful is it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's been so many campaigns like that Cancer Research UK ran one years back which was similar which was about the foods that parents feed their children being a cause of cancer or being related to cancer oh my god yeah it's like fear 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 it is it's very and fears in terms of food i don't think it's generally a motivator it's not like saying put your seat belts on or you might crash that's you know in those sorts of situations fear can be a motivator but i think where it's something that you're doing every day eat like eating and there are so many factors that are, that are around that around the decisions that you make some of which are in your control and a lot of them aren't Fear isn't a helpful motivator to to change behaviour where it comes to food. Maybe where it comes to things like food poisoning, I don't know. It's 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 quite there are grey areas there, but I think generally fear doesn't act as a pretty, a very helpful motivator around around food. So what do you think? What do you think can be done about it, and what do you think needs to be done about it around stigma or? Well, I'm just thinking of the campaigns that you're... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done my bit as much as I can. Um, Food Standards Scotland ran a campaign around upsizing, which I felt similarly about a couple of years ago. So I, whenever these things come up, I kinda, I'll kind of i write a wee little complaint and sort of state my case about why it's maybe not the most effective way of doing things. With the Cancer Research UK campaign, there was quite a few of us that got together and wrote an open letter to them, which got a bit of attention on, I think... I wasn't at the follow-up meeting around that, but a few of the group did go and meet with them and, 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 and try to help them to get a clearer understanding of the implications of using a stigmatising approach. And hopefully that might lead to differences in the way that they look at things in future. But I think it is, it's just, for me, it's speaking up whenever you see something and helping people to understand because 
it isn't something that people understand. People are so fixed on we need to promote children's health and higher weight is a risk to children's health. So we need to do anything and everything that we can to stop that from harming them. So what would you see as a great campaign? I prefer not... I I prefer not to see lots of campaigns, to be honest. I prefer to see policy change. And I think the changes that people are pushing for with these campaigns, so a lot of the work that's being done by like public health policy advocates, campaigners, activists around changing the food environment, I am supportive of that. But I think we need to reframe it as being about fairness in the food environment and not, you know, so protecting children from marketing, I think is a a sensible kind of approach to take but it should be about all children and it should be about well-being rather than it being specifically about changing body size mm-hmm. so i think reframing those messages to to positive well-being focused um approaches so that because everybody can benefit from from eating well and everybody can benefit from physical activity so i think yeah, we need to look at the benefits of those things rather than what we're trying to avoid. But at a pol- I think the change needs to happen at a structural level. And when you look at the things that influence people's food choices, it's like stress, money, all of those things. And so action at that, what's like the fundamental determinants kind of level needs to be taken. But again, I do think when we make it about people's weight, it just leads to that polarised view and people don't support then the policy changes because they don't see it as something that's relevant to them. They see it as something that is relevant to other people Mm. and that those other people should just change their lifestyles and then we could all have the so-called freedom of choice that people think that they have, which they don't. (laughs) So... You did another open letter, so mm-hmm. you collaborated with a few other weight-inclusive nutritionists to, to write to Jimmy Oliver um, about his campaign he launched to tackle childhood obesity. <laughs> First of all, tell us how that came about. For me, the catalyst of that letter was seeing Jamie Oliver on the front page, I think it was of The Scotsman with Nicola Sturgeon, and they had announced this target to have childhood obesity by 2030. And I'd really been paying a lot of attention to what was happening at policy level in Scotland at that time. And I was like, where has this come from? You know, because the government had put out a policy for consultation, the responses were in, there was a lot of feedback around weight stigma, around how we need to improve diet in Scotland, we need to help people to be more active, we need to reduce health inequalities. But suddenly the central focus was this num- like numeric target to change the number of children who had bodies in higher weight. So alongside that, I think Jamie Oliver had, had written an article in The Guardian a few weeks before that where he'd really strongly described reducing childhood ob- obesity as a war. So I th- That really I, helpful term. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think that kind of battle, that kind of combative language is really really unhelpful I think all of that it just fuels this kind of divisiveness that I was speaking about and it misses the point so we know that the the distribution of weight across the population has changed over the years that people on lower incomes are much likely to have a higher weight especially children than people on higher incomes and a lot of that there's there's fundamental things going on there around health inequality We know the food environment is unfair, that people find it difficult to eat in the way that they want to, especially if they don't have a lot of money or they're working 
two or three jobs to try and support a family. So I thought that so many of the actions that were being proposed both at the government level and by Jamie Oliver were really positive, but I really got riled up about the target. <laughs> so I just got together with a, a couple of friends, Laura, um, Helen and Rosie, and we decided just to write an open letter and just to really point out the fact that, you know, while we supported action on improving the food environment, on, you know, addressing the ter- determinants of health, we just thought that making it about children's weight was a really unhelpful way forward and could have unintended consequences. So we just wanted to kind of lay out our case and and see if that could hopefully lead to a bit of change. And I think in some ways I have seen things changing a bit since then. So I see it as a win. But um, Did it get back to you? Not personally. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the attention. Really, the reason that it was aimed at Jamie Oliver is because he has got the ear of so many people. He has yeah. the power to change the way that he talks about things. He he's very well respected. He's shown in the past that he can he's able to change to affect policy change in lots of different areas. And what we wanted to say of, about it was we're supportive of the things that you want to change, but please can you frame it differently? Yeah, um, because this is just undoing all of the benefits that might mm-hmm. actually come from the, the good actions within yeah. within his campaign. Yeah, definitely. Particularly seeing, you know, children from such a young age being dissatisfied with their bodies and disordered eating behaviours. So children as young as five are restricting their foods to try to avoid weight gain or to try to, you know, change their size. Some of the stats are just so depressing. Yeah, I think in sort of, was it 16 year olds, it's somewhere around um, 40% have disordered eating behaviours and the incidence of eating disorders are going up they're still really small in children but they have been going up and they've been more often getting diagnosed in younger ages so children that are eight nine years old there's not huge again not huge amount of evidence on this but some of the case study type approaches seem to suggest that susceptible children where they are kind of fed a lot of messages around healthy eating if they are the kind of child that is quite people pleasing quite rule bound um, they may internalize those kind of good bad messages and really start to restrict their their eating and when you're doing that at eight nine years old that has really profound consequences on you longer term not to mention the amount of children that are told in well-meaning ways to eat healthier when they're when they're young and get caught up in that kind of diet trap from a young young age so i think we just wanted to really push back against that a bit and yeah, it just seemed at that time, it just seemed like the a useful way to do it. It did get a bit of attention, but I do feel a bit bad sometimes when I think about the fact that it got taken as a big criticism of, of one person, because that's not really my, my approach generally. You know, I think we all need to work together and we all need to find common ground. But I think if you're really passionate about this being potentially destructive, I read the letter and I, I, I noticed that your language about how you are supportive in certain ways, but mm-hmm. you're sticking up for this thing that you find very important and you find it can be very damaging. So yeah. it's, it's imp- I'm really impressed that you actually, you make a stand. You know, I hope Jamie read it and has taken it to heed. Hope so. <laughs> so one thing I liked from your website was, nutrition does matter, but there are positive ways to eat well and to feel good about our bodies and it doesn't need to be stressful. And at the same time, it is complicated because of the sheer volume of conflicting information that we find online 
alongside all the barriers that can get in the way of how we want to eat. And I, I think it's really helpful for people to like understand that when they start becoming enlightened about diet culture, about the language that they might use, the external pressures of body image and weight stigma, and they recognize the specific message that we've been fed all our lives about what's a good body and what's a bad body, I think people need to kind of recognize that just because you're more enlightened or you're more educated about it and you're more aware of the systemic pressure that there is, it doesn't mean that you're free from it mm -hmm. and you can just live this joyous, peaceful life unencumbered anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it's just not the case that just being educated about a, a systemic pressure means that you're free from it. It's like mm -hmm. it's everywhere, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So who are the people talking sense online about this sort of thing that people can follow maybe around weight stigma, weight and food neutrality and so that people can like fill their social media with like some good information? There's so many. And so it's tricky to answer this question because I don't want to leave anybody out. But I think in terms of weight stigma, somebody that I really love is your fat friend who's done a lot of posts on, I think I think it's Medium that she posts on. So she does a little post on Twitter or on Instagram that gives a summary of it. But she really shares a lot of her personal experiences around weight stigma in quite a, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, but it's it's not in a confrontational way. It's in a very it's much an a, informational. Yeah, this is what it's like for me. These are things that I've experienced that you might not understand. and it's or, just Or these are things that are really helpful for people to know yes aha uh -huh. yeah aha uh -huh. so it's done in a really i think in a non-threatening non-confrontational kind of way but very clear about you know what it's like to to be at a higher weight how society treats you and yeah how how people can think about improving because i think when people are confrontational about some of these things then people kind of hunker down and think well you know you see your Piers Morgan style responses so I think that's a great place to go to if you're just looking for a general understanding of what what weight stigma is and, and what it feels like what I'll do is I'll put links to the people that we suggest in the show notes brilliant because yeah. we're mostly talking about kind of children for for parents who want to kind of know a bit more around the impacts of weight stigma and how to navigate that and how to support children to have a positive relationship to to food and their bodies there's another podcast that i like called the full the full bloom podcast is it called the full bloom podcast or the full bloom <laughs> i've forgotten how to say it. <laughs> it's really hard to say it the full bloom podcast it's two american psychotherapists i think that write it and there's quite a lot of different episodes with experts but it is very much aimed at parents so they cover all sorts of different factors that that are useful for parents to understand to kind of navigate this whole whole field. And then if anyone wants to do a course, probably I'd recommend Laura Thomas's course, Raising Intuitive Eaters, which I contributed to. So that's available through London Centre for Intuitive Eating. And Laura's got a new account. She is pregnant at the moment. So she's got a new account called Bub Appetite on Instagram, where she's sharing a lot of stuff around navigating diet and culture um during pregnancy and beyond so yeah there's there are loads there are so many good accounts and i don't want to leave anyone out but no but the, when people f <laughs> learn about those first few that we've suggested there will be so many that come from there yeah uh-huh yeah so i know i said in the opening that we were going to talk more about how we can help parents help their kids cultivate a better attitude to their bodies I wanted to make sure that we discussed weight stigma first because it's really important that parents and teachers and anyone who's around children understands more about that topic so that they can see how bringing weight stigmatizing 
food shaming, body shaming, diet culture sort of language into their home, their school or around their children can be a big issue. I know you're really passionate about young children having a positive attitude towards their own bodies and food. What made you move into this specific area? I know you said things flagged up when you were pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, did anything come more as your children have grown up? I think it's just I, at the time when I first was pregnant, I had just started working in the NHS and part of my role was early years nutrition. So it just kind of grew through that, through looking at what information we were given to parents and, and how that could be improved on and kind of questioning some of the messages that were coming through. So yeah, having having children myself has probably been the, the underlying factor in how I've decided to, to focus on this. Looking at it from a weight-inclusive perspective, I think it was around the time that I had just had my little boy and gone back to work, I became aware of the work that NHS Highland were doing. So they had started using Lucy Aframore's Well Now approach instead of sort of standard weight management programmes. So they were trying to look at supporting people to have a positive relationship to food and their bodies. And so I started looking at that um, alongside the work that I was doing in in food and health. And Because currently in the rest of Scotland, the the general sort of route for if you've got... Are you not like prescribed to go to Weight Watchers or something? It depends on the area. Each health board does it differently, but they have got standardised guidance now that came out last... No, just this year? forgotten what time of year we are it came out fairly recently anyway they've kind of tried to standardize the approaches but yeah uh highland had started doing well now probably about five years ago and but what does well now kind of look like it's looking from that weight inclusive perspective at how to support people around food kind of mitigating weight stigma or challenging weight stigma with also um, a focus on trauma and yes aha uh-huh, yeah um recognizing but, how that plays a part in people's lives and their relationship to themselves and food yeah yeah i'm trying to remember the the taglines for it it's trauma-informed compassion centered and justice enhancing i think amazing <laughs> that's three all of the of buzzwords it. yeah <laughs> But yeah, so the idea that they're working with people and they're not making their weight the issue, they're, they're looking at what else is going on for them and how, you know, what influences the relationship to food and how, how to support them to get more clearly in tune with their, their own body's needs in context of all the other stuff that's making it difficult for them to do that. So I became aware of that approach and because I had little children and was working in early years nutrition, I started looking around at what else there was available and why were we not looking at this from a younger age? Why were we not starting it? from day dot and and supporting those weight inclusive pro- approaches from that stage so it's just started yeah looking to see what what else was available and how i could sort of support what highland were doing and um maybe look at how how things could be done better elsewhere so i mean i know this may sound like a dumb question and parents have a lot to cope with mm-hmm. as we've already talked about but why should we why should body image and encouraging your child to have a good relationship to food and their body be such a focus for parents? I, I guess we have to start somewhere. We could start with parents or we could start with kids and it's all, it's that intergenerational cycle. But I think there's more and more focus on preventing obesity. So on working with parents to try to enable children to grow um, along one of those so-called healthy growth curves so that they're not kind of 
suddenly so so it's about working with parents when children start to diverge off the standard growth curve that they're on when they start to rapidly gain weight working with them I think you know that that worries me because I don't want parents to feel like blamed or responsible for for their children's weight I think there can be an awful lot going on but I think it is at that at that early stage that is the time where we can support parents to to sort of nurture those healthy attitudes towards their children's body and as well as that you know look at what are the what are the things that are influencing their their health related behaviors so I I would just I would I would flip it around a bit and look at you know supporting families rather than trying to change children's size if that makes sense and on a on another general sort of level like encouraging people as they grow mm-hmm. to have a good body image can be massively impactful in the rest of their life yes uh-huh. so you know reducing the chances of eating disorders reducing the, the the health implications that come with um potentially like not eating well mm-hmm. or eating uh, not being physically active mm-hmm. you know making sure that people have a good relationship to their bodies so that they're respecting their body they're paying mm-hmm. attention to its needs I know personally that like that has a massive impact on so many different areas of your life if you flip from having negative body image and thinking that your body is wrong in some way to flipping it to being like I like my body I love my mm-hmm. body I'm going to respect my body listen to it try and do right by it it can impact so much of the rest of your life your relationships your health your mental health your physical health and I think that is kind of one of the most important factors in why we are doing this work it's mm-hmm. like it's it's trying to change it so that as a nation we are mentally and physically well mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's other things like everybody wants to protect children's health don't they you know like that so that's a it's, a it's an easier kind of target to say like let's do what we can to enable children to grow up with positive relationships to their bodies with positive approaches to the way that they eat rather than thinking about it for adults the other thing is we know that from the sort of appetite point of view children little ones generally do have a good understanding of their hunger and fullness cues and we override that in infancy so generally when you give a little baby whether it's um, breast milk or a bottle when they've had enough they'll kind of and 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 feeding them um, actual food as well when they've had enough they will generally like turn away act disinterested clamp their mouth down refuse the food and if we can maintain that that makes that whole process of eating according to your hunger and fullness cues easier as you get older there's a lot of things in childhood that undermine people's ability to eat intuitively or spell them out (laughs) so let's think about I think now that the guidance that NHS have given it around milk feeding is to feed responsibly. So to actually pay attention to children when they're showing signs of hunger and when they're showing signs of fullness and to feed them according to that. But say you were to look on the side of a packet of baby formula, it will suggest, or if you were to read any baby book as well, any of the main baby books, it will suggest feeding to a schedule. It will say how many mils of milk each baby should have, that kind of thing. So we we don't trust children to be able to decide how much they want to eat even portion size guidance that's another thing that i get um on my high horse about when we are saying these are how many exactly the size of portion that a child should have of this different foods 
not that's, taking into consideration the child's age their hunger their yeah. their activity level that day their energy levels what they've experienced yeah and if you let a child just eat the amount that they want to obviously if you if you overload their if you're constantly fill, giving them a huge portion of food a huge plateful and encouraging them to finish that they probably will they'll probably override those fullness signals because they want to please you and they'll keep eating and over time those kind of natural hunger and fullness signals are like likely to be eroded and that's it's it's so tricky because i don't want people to feel bad that they've ever done that because it's normal stuff to do mm, i mean it's you how all the time up. yeah the the, um, the the four more bites the five more bites and finish your play and yeah it's how we were brought up but if you look at letting like starting small and feeding your children more if they want more letting them decide when they've had enough some days they will eat masses and other days they will pick away and hardly eat anything at all and they're able to regulate so they won't have the same amount every day um, they're able to 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 regulate the amount they eat and grow at a pace that's right for them and that might be at a higher weight or it might be at a lower weight it is important to have conversations with a health professional if you're concerned if a child's kind of so when you have a child you get a little book that's got a chart in it that explains how their their weight is changing over time it's got curves on it and generally a child will sort of track the same curve so if they're dropping down quite a lot from that or if their growth is accelerating it is worth a conversation with a health professional because there are lots of reasons why that might happen but generally if you just let them have a bit of freedom to eat the amount that their body needs they probably will do okay. A lot of parents listening to this might think, well, my my kid, uh, you know, there's a lots of chat about control at the mm-hmm, dinner table mm-hmm. and how children might refuse to eat and the parent just wants to make sure that they're getting enough nutrition in them or at least food in them in some yeah. way. And that's what I hear mainly from parents is like, they just won't eat and I just, you know, I, I it's my responsibility to make sure that they're fed. Yes, uh-huh. So what would you say to them? There's lots of things that you can look at there. So it is a myth to say that children will eat if you leave them to eat because some children don't, like some children will not eat. And those children, that's why I'm saying that if your child's weight is dropping or your child is, if there's an impact on their health, if they don't seem well, absolutely need to talk to a health professional about that because there are situations where a child won't eat and they need specialist support with that. There are brilliant programmes of support that can be put in place to help a child that won't eat, but there are situations where they will not eat and they will have health consequences of that. But in most cases in children, there might be some meals that they don't eat and that's okay. You know, they might eat, they might pick it very little. So it's a think about noticing across the day. So maybe not looking at the meal, but thinking across the day, have they had enough? You know, are they maybe full because they actually had a snack at four o'clock? So they're not hungry for the dinner at half past five? Look across the day, look at are they having enough gaps between meals and enough chance to feel hungry when they're coming to the table? Tell us about the division of responsibility that I know you've talked about before. <laughs> so that was designed by a, a dietitian and therapist from America called Ellen Satter. It's quite widely used across child feeding. It's basically around structuring the parent's responsibilities around feeding with the child's responsibilities around eating. So essentially, um, once they're past the milk feeding stage and they're onto solid foods, the parent's responsibilities are to decide what food is served, when it's served and where it's served. So in an ideal situation, the food would be 
mostly served at a dinner table in a kind of relaxed and pleasant environment with adults sitting there so that children can see them eating because children really learn from what they see other people doing what they learn from trusted adults and if you can kind of put the food into the middle of the table that's brilliant totally recognize that that is not possible for every family and do you mean like uh, that sort of american family style eating where where kids uh choose what they put on their plate yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so they have a bit of control over so it's allowing the child to have a bit of control over what they're eating within a structure and limits that the adult has set up for them I understand that that is not possible at every meal and and it's not possible at a lot of meals for a lot of families. So um, there needs to be kind of flexible ways of looking at that. But where children are given the chance to come to the dinner table hungry, to have a selection of food, including some familiar foods. So say, for example, your child only eats plain pasta. That's a pretty standard one. I think that's probably the stage that my daughter is still at just now, sometimes pasta with a bit of cheese. But you put the vegetables out, the sauce out, everybody else is eating the vegetables and the sauce, and eventually they do start to show an interest in it. But it it does require a lot of patience, and it does require parents or carers or, you know, any trusted adult to be sitting down with the kids, even if you're not having your meal at the same time as them. If you're having a a tiny little snack, a lot of the same food as they are, and sharing it together, it just helps them to see, it helps them to be familiarised with the foods that you want them to eat to have a bit more confidence around eating foods that they're less familiar with and just to to try and develop as a what's known as a competent eater in quite relaxed circumstances um, and what is a parent how how do we display a better relationship to food and our bodies I mean obviously my number one would be you don't talk negatively about your mm-hmm, body mm-hmm. you don't talk negatively about other people's bodies mm-hmm. you don't you don't point out differences unless it's, uh, you know, complimenting someone. Mm-hmm. I think people need to recognise the impact that if they don't have a happy relationship towards their own body, it's not something that needs to be displayed in front of children. In fact, it's yeah. really damaging to display it because of the mimicking aspect of mm-hmm. how children learn. But also, how can you display a, a relationship to food that might be beneficial for children to notice? I think let them see you eating all different kinds of foods. Like think about how you want them to eat and try to emulate that yourself. And that's really difficult for people. Like if you don't have a, a positive relationship to food yourself, I think, you know, looking for resources around, you know, approaches like intuitive eating to think, well, how can I get myself into a place where I am able to feel comfortable around food and and want to eat the same? Because I think if you can eat the same foods or similar foods as your children as much as possible, that really helps them to enjoy all different types of food. I will, you know, hold my hand up and say there are plenty of times that I let my children have fish fingers, chips and peas for tea and I wouldn't eat fish fingers myself. I don't like them, but, you know, if you... You don't like fish fingers? No, they're horrible. (laughs) What are you talking about? They're amazing. (laughs) I don't have any judgment towards fish fingers, but I just don't enjoy them. God, they're delicious. (laughs) But I'd sit and I'll have some of the chips and peas or whatever, you know, I'll try and put a lot of different things out on the table and there'll be things that I like because I got into a bit of a trap of eating kid food, actually, to say... Kid food? Yeah. What do you mean kid food, Sarah? (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, I want my children to eat the same food as me, but I need to serve things that they will like. So and you didn't have so, anything spicy for a while. So I didn't have anything like my my favourites are um, stir fries and curries, and I just knew that if I made that, they wouldn't eat it. Not so, even if they saw you eating it. Yeah, most kids go through a phase of pretty fussy eating from uh, sort of eighteen months or so right through to five or six years old. My son's six now, and he's eating a much more varied diet than he did for the past few years. But that is normal behaviour, you know. To to suddenly start refusing food. Um, Why is that? It's, well, it's thought to have kind of evolutionary um, beginnings. So when kids started learning to walk and crawl and they could go away from their families, the sort of foods that are dangerous for you are the more kind of bitter foods. And so it's kind of, it's protective almost for children to not like those foods. But also children are just... They exert their independence and control and if they see that you want them to do something, food is one area where they can quite easily clamp their mouths shut and be like, nope, not eating that. So it's that fine balance between feeding them, giving them food that you know that they'll eat, that you know they'll be nourished and wanting that variety to show up in the way that you eat. So I try, I know now most meals and I will serve spicy things and stir fries now alongside food that they're maybe more likely to eat so some of the plainer vegetables maybe strips of like omelette and you know bits of rice and so on so everybody gets to eat something and what would you say about sweet things and (laughs) dessert and you're not going to get dessert unless you've finished your meal that sort of conversation yeah my kids have still picked up all those things, even though it's so I know you said before about modeling positive language around your body, they'll pick it up anyway, right? I don't say anything negative about my body or anybody else's body at home, but my children who are, who are four and six have still heard those things. They've heard that they will get a fat tummy if they eat certain things, or they have heard that you need to eat your meal before you get your pudding. Mm. And I go back and I'm like, we don't let do that in this house. So, what do you do in your house? Um, if I'm like my daughter's four and she'll say, Is it a fooding day, mummy? Fooding? <laughs> fooding day. Oh, I said pudding. Is it a fooding day, mummy? And I'll just some days I'll be like, Yeah, today it is, or no, it's not today. And they know kind of if they get quite fixated on pudding, I, I put it on the table at the same time as the food, and if they want to eat it first, they can. I did that a lot with my son who was quite focused on eating sweet foods. But he's kind of gone past that now. So it's just... That will be really weird to hear for a lot of people. I know. Uh-huh. Like, okay, so I'm going to put the ice cream on the table or the cake on the table alongside the yeah. celery and yeah. you expect my kid to actually get to the celery at yeah. some point. You wouldn't put the whole tub of ice cream and say help yourself, <laughs> but you can put a little bowlful and go, you know, if I wouldn't do that as a matter of course, but if children are showing a lot of interest in puddings, they're like, I don't want to eat this when's pudding putting it out there and saying well if you want to eat your pudding first that's fine and then if they say I want more pudding say no you've you've had your pudding if you're still hungry you can have that in as neutral a voice as possible keeping it all is just like yeah some days we have pudding some days we don't um, some days pudding is an apple and yeah, some days uh-huh. pudding is something chocolatey some or... days it's chocolate ice cream some days it's just a piece of fruit and it's all lovely but there are certain times that I do let them eat a large amount of sweets and chocolate if they want to because they need to it's not that I want to encourage them to eat those foods but we have to be conscious of the fact that we live in the food environment that we do 
that they're going to be exposed to those foods. My son's still going through a phase, if he has any money, he wants to go to the shop and buy sweeties. You know, so the more we can help them to eat sweets and be just like quite happy having the amount that satisfies them and then stopping, um, but we need to create the circumstances that enables them to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, what can happen is once they have a freedom to go and buy the foods themselves or they're at a party, they eat way past the point of fullness and they don't feel very well or or it becomes something that they get a bit secretive about. Yeah, deprivation, mm-hmm. whether it's from you thinking that food is bad or a parent depriving you of certain types of food Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've all seen before how that can lead to overconsumption at other Mm -hmm. times or a messed up relationship to that type of food Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. being as neutral as possible making sure that they have a very diverse diet yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there was something that was about um some day foods and everyday foods do you subscribe to that i don't use that language no um i just try to keep it call food what it is so I don't tend to use a lot of different language like that about food. I'll just, I mean, I'll like Annika's got that um, fooding thing. <laughs> Is it fooding day? Because they pick up pudding from, I guess, nursery and school. But generally, biscuits are biscuits, sweets are sweets, um, apples are apples. You know, it's not. Uh, it's they're not, all but just you're not categorizing mm-hmm. something as it's just yeah, yeah, and it's your mm-hmm. responsibility to as a parent to mm-hmm. pr- provide a balanced sort of yeah. do you even use the word balanced <laughs> um i wouldn't use it with them i don't really teach them about nutrition i'll just try and give them experiences with food you know yeah. help them to appreciate and learn about all different foods and you cook a lot with them when i have time <laughs> i have seen pictures of you baking or yeah yeah i get, get them, them to cut up the vegetables that's quite a good one i've got little child safe knives and even if they won't eat the vegetables like getting them to handle it and wash it or chop it up just helps it just builds over time but i guess what i would say to any parent that's struggling i struggle too you know children are growing up and they're exposed to diet culture messages all the time and they're exposed to food advertising all the time. So it's quite tricky to get them to have a balanced approach to food. So I'm working my way through it. And every parent that I've met is doing their best with it as well. So just trying to have a bit of patience and trying to be relaxed and not being hard on yourself is really important throughout all that. Agreed. You know, mm-hmm. every parent is trying to do their best for their child. Absolutely. In the majority. And, you know, that makes that's a sign of a good parent. Yeah. It mm-hmm. just it helps when we can have these sorts of conversation yeah. that might shine a light on certain things that might be useful. Yeah. But it's so, so hard for parents just now. And while there are sort of tools like the division of responsibility, there isn't one set of instructions or rules that's going to work for every family. So it's very much about looking at your family, thinking about how you talk about food, how you eat yourself, what kind of experiences your ha- your children have with food and just trying to make it as relaxed and enjoyable as possible for them. Because we want, we want children to enjoy food. We want children to be healthy, but we want them to enjoy being active and eating and eating a whole variety of food and being able to eat food without feeling guilty. So what are you currently working on at the moment? At the moment, I am working four days a week on a project for around perinatal mental health so my day job is nothing to do with food at all (laughs) but I'm still I'm trying to kind of chip away at having conversations around this as often as I can and I've got my own little podcast that's just about to launch so 
yeah, just trying to have co- as many conversations as I can to look collectively at what we can do to make a difference. So making eating well without stress, reality for all families. That's kind of my so among, my focus. <laughs> so on top of having a job and being a mum, you're also really engaged in this sort of yeah, conversation. Yeah, no, I, I just feel really passionately about it. So I don't have a business or anything like that at the moment. I don't do one-to-one work just now. I am always more than happy to speak to people about it. I actually started the Instagram account that I originally started around this was just an opportunity to play around with messages, help me and be a bit creative about how I spoke about food. What is your Instagram? It's now Sarah Dempster Nutrition. I used to call it We Foodies, but I kind of changed it because I wanted to cover more different things. So yeah, that's And what's your website? It's sarahdempster.co.uk. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's I really appreciate lovely, it. Lovely, as always, chatting with you. There was so much in that. I know, I can talk for like days and days about all of this. It's quite hard to get me to shut up once I get started. <laughs> I appreciate everything you said. I tried to talk fast <laughs> to cover it all. <laughs> well, thank you so much. really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Danny. Well, isn't she just a star? I hope that's been of use to quite a few of you and thanks so much to Sarah for giving her time and wisdom. I've put a ton of links into the show notes so you can check out the people and ideas we discussed and ways to follow Sarah. First stop should be to listen to her podcast. It's called Eating Words. She interviews people from around the world working in children's food and nutrition and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode interesting then perhaps there's someone else you know who also might find it useful. And I did want to say that I really appreciate all of you who have messaged and left reviews to let me know how much you enjoyed episode one. Hopefully episode two was just as good. Our little ones are the next warriors. I hope we can all play our part in making sure they grow up with a strong armour against diet culture. And just like the first episode, I have a special goodbye from one of the little people in my life, my nephew Otis. If you'd like your wee warrior to contribute to Chatchy Chats, then send me a recording of them and I'll try my best to fit them in. So take it away, Otis. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. Goodbye.